0: to our podcast about leisure, work, and well-being, where we explore what we can learn from our experiences engaging with leisure seriously, and from the vast literature on the topic of serious leisure. My name is Petia Petrova. I'm Associate Director of Academic Practice. I'm based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, henceforth referred to as UWE. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm joined by our regular and extraordinary podcast contributors, Kat Branch, who is leader of the Ue Centre for Music. Welcome, Kat. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Patia. And of course, we are also joined by Dr. Sam Elkington from Teesside University. Sam is our resident podcast expert and the co-author of the series Leisure Perspective book. Welcome, Sam.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: We are very excited to welcome today our two esteemed guests. We have Dr. Richard Waller, who is Associate Professor of the Sociology of Education here at UWE. Welcome, Richard.
2: Hello, Petya. Thank you very much.
0: And also here at UWE, we have John Dovey, Professor of Screen Media.
3: Hi, Petya. Good to see everybody. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you and welcome, John. Richard and John, can you please introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us something about your professional roles?
2: Okay, I'll, I'll go first. So it's Richard. Um, I, I've been at UWE for many years. I was actually an undergraduate student at what was then Bristol Polytechnic back in the 1980s. Um, then I disappeared for a few years and came back uh, as a part-time lecturer in the sociology department, uh, an hourly paid lecturer. And then I did a PhD in what was then the Faculty of Education, which I started in 2001. And I've been here ever since. I'm now associate professor, as you said, and I co-lead our professional doctorate in education and have various other roles in terms of postgrad teaching and my own research.
0: Thank you, Richard.
3: John? I am a professor of screen media, as you said, because I used to work in the film and television industry and before I was an academic. And then I sort of slithered into academia about 25 years ago and have been teaching film, television, various forms of digital media production and creative work since then. These days, mainly what I do is I'm a kind of project manager for research and innovation programs that put together businesses with um, academics to, to, to do innovation work. Uh, so mainly what I do do is kind of administer big research projects that have those kinds of funding streams behind them. So a lot of project work, a lot of delivery, a lot of deadlines, uh, uh, and a lot of being busy, In especially in this kind of mad Zoom Teams world that we live in at the moment.
0: Thank you. This is so fascinating. It's um, It's always interesting how our professional backdrops, particularly in this podcast, well, our professional profiles provide a really interesting backdrop to our leisure pursuits, which is what we're going to talk to you about. So both of you have a shared leisure pursuit and that is fly fishing. And um, we have had a theme to do with fish and having fish and bubbles in the background. So we are definitely continuing and pursuing uh, with with that side of uh, of, of, uh, fish related themes. But it was really interesting if first of all, you tell us what is fly fishing Uh, Because until I spoke to Richard, I really didn't have any idea that it existed and what it was. And also how you came to be doing fly fishing as a hobby.
3: Thank you. Um, Well, I would define fly fishing as the art of trying to propel a very tiny piece of fluff into a very large expanse of often moving water in order to trick a, a wily trout into thinking that it's a beautiful fly that's landed for its lunch uh, and will therefore um, eat it and allay to catch the fish it's a, it's about using particular kinds of combinations of fur feather and hook to produce imitations of terrestrial fly life and aquatic fly life in order to in order to catch fish and i got into it because i was always into fishing as a kid really i was a kind of you know fishing was one of those things that, as a little boy gave you a license to to roam about the countryside with a whole load of lads. And I guess you could say that's probably what I'm still doing. So I used to do it when I was a child uh, just with worms and maggots and, and other forms of, of of more more easy to access and basic fishing and then I so I suppose sometimes in my in my 40s I guess I had a chum who was a bit of a zen master of fly fishing and he started talking to me about it and then uh, I got interested and in, and and got bought some lessons actually for a birthday and since then I've been doing it you know quite a lot I guess uh yeah, it's become it's become a major a major bit of my life yes over the last 15 or 20 years
0: thank you for this john i think it's so fascinating how we we keep coming to this theme about um incidental engagement but also some history somewhere in in our past that brings that um in richard how did you engage with uh, or come come to do fly fishing and also do you want to add anything to uh, John's description
2: of fly fishing? <laughs> no, I, th- I think John generally gave gave a really good description. Uh, I think one thing that differentiates it from other fishing, which non-fisher people may not have picked up there, is the fact you don't use real bait, in a sense. You don't use you know things like worms and maggots or squid if you're uh, fishing in the sea and things like that. It is all artificial lures, as they're known, uh, hooks that are covered in bits of fluff and feather and foam and, and, and things like that, as John said, to try and fall the trout usually although it can be fly fishing takes place uh, for other species as well Um, it's also the main source of fishing for salmon for sport and a few other fish in in the uk some people do sea fishing with fly fishing but there's not much of that in the uk but in some of the tropics there is a kind of fairly popular sport there similar to john i used to fish as a kid uh, throughout my teens and i used to fish in the sea as well near where i grew up in Essex as well as in some lakes with some friends uh, and as John said you know it's a good way to hang around with friends and as he said we in a sense we're still doing that John and I met effectively through a, a, a mutual love of fly fishing and we, we go fishing together along with some other people so that that social aspect to it is is very important as well as I think we'll, we'll come on to explore. I started fly fishing. I was introduced to it by uh, one of my neighbors about 10 years ago. He and I and another group of friends were on a boat sea fishing. um, And he said he he mentioned the fact he goes fly fishing and has done since he was four or five years old. His father used to go. And he invited me along. uh, And I went along with him to Chew Reservoir, which is not too far from where we live in Bristol and is one of the best places in the country, Uh, and I had a go at it, and I fell in love with it, really. And it's been a kind of fairly consuming hobby I've had, leisure activity, for the last 10 years or so. I think it's something I, I can't imagine not doing now.
0: It's interesting use of words that you just had there, Richard. Fell in love with it. And my question is, why and how would you fall in love with fly fishing?
2: A combination of things, it's partly social. Um, as John said, we're often either in, in moving water, so fishing in rivers and wading and so on. And you're very much with nature and you need to take an awareness of, of what's going on in terms of the insects that are hatching. Because part of what you do when you're river fishing particularly is try and what's known as match the hatch, whereby you, you find a fly that looks like the sort of food items that are uh, that are hatching on un, under those conditions that time of year and so on. You're also inevitably going to see lots of other wildlife as well. There's always birds around and kingfishers and heron and, and some birds that we associate with the water. We often see mammals, see otters, you know, when we're fishing, which is a mixed blessing. It doesn't mean the fishing's going to be great, but I guess it shows there's something in there and you see, you know, voles and deer and things like that. And that, that's part of it. But it's also part of being with friends and having this kind of common interest. But it's a very fo- active form of fishing as well. Some forms of fishing, coarse fishing as it's known, freshwater fishing, often involves sitting still and looking at a float or at the end of your rod tip for movement. Whereas fly fishing, you're constantly active. You can't do it without concentrating on it in a sense. And it's, it's very mindful in that regard. And it's, it's probably the only thing I can spend hours and hours and hours doing without thinking about checking emails or or, or things like that it's all absorbing really and I find that very appealing as well
0: thank you Richard I wonder if John's experience of fly fishing and that mindfulness is also the appeal for him so why fly fishing John and and what's the appeal for you
3: one of the reasons that I adore fly fishing is is it's aesthetics actually and by that, I mean it's not the most efficient way of catching fish or, or indeed of doing anything. It's a kind of mad thing to do in a way because you've got this tiny uh, bit of fluff that you've got to propel onto the water and that requires a particular kind of arrangement of physical materials, a particular kind of rod, a particular kind of line, very particular kind of locations. And learning how to cast is a really challenging and quite difficult physical disposition of of, uh, uh, a skill that you need to learn a bit like trying to have a perfect golf swing or a great tennis stroke or something like that it requires a combination of mind body and and physical materials and the moment of actually getting your line your special line in the air behind you and kind of propelling it forward onto the water in, in a perfect cast where the lion just kisses the water and the fly falls in exactly the right place on the flow and travels down and you see a fish come up out of the water to take it, is just a very beautiful, for me, aesthetic experience, actually. So a lot of it is about certain kinds of style, I suppose, rather than efficiency. And I think that's true of a lot of games and sports, right? I mean, a lot of games and sports have inefficiencies built into them that are designed to make it beautiful in some kind of a way. Just look at cricket. It's a completely ridiculous game, but people find all sorts of pleasures out of the fact that it's constrained by this very particular set of rules that make it aesthetically pleasing to the people that enjoy that kind of thing so uh, a lot of it's to do with that that for me and I guess the second thing that I'd say about it is really just to amplify what what Rich said you know that actually that sense of putting on your waders and stepping into a river and walking into a river up to your waist which in fact is something that is a childlike pleasure that never goes away. It's like putting on your wellies and stepping into a puddle, except it's just at a bigger scale. You get to the middle of the river, you are in somebody else's domain. You're in the realm of the river gods at this point, And you have to really absorb yourself into the landscape and try to sort of feel your way into it. You have to be reading the river, thinking about the insects, thinking about the weather, the wind direction, what the sun's doing. So you just become completely absorbed in this flow state, I would call it, really. And that's what I love is being able to get into that state and let two or three hours pass uh, without even noticing that the time has gone by.
0: You describe it so beautifully; it's, uh, it's amazing. And I think that there's so many parallels with what we've already discussed. But I also think of what we might come to discuss next, and I think Kat would be interested in that idea of artistry. Um, that, that you describe, um, and I'm sure that Sam has so many parallels to draw here um, around serious serious leisure and, and the involvement and the social aspect of it, as well as the the flow state that um, Jonathan uh, just described. So my question really is to our regular podcast contributors, Kat and Sam, who wants to come in next here in this conversation?
4: Yeah, I was really captivated by your description, John, of the... The experience of fly fishing and the talk description of flow state. But actually, what particularly resonated with me was this kind of um, passion and enjoyment that permeated your description, which I have to say really reminded me of the kind of experiences I might have in music at different times and that complete immersing within a process, an enjoyment of the aesthetic, and a complete engagement in the present moment. I think, though, as a musician, I feel like it's a long journey to develop the skill, the that aesthetic that I'm aiming for, and also to be able to operate the different tools that i might be using in such a way that that flow state becomes accessible to me i'd love to know john from your perspective and also rich perhaps from yourself how it is that you have kept committed to something actually that has this artistry that has these these constraints that you've talked about it's quite difficult it's deliberately challenging what is it that has kept you on that journey to get to where you've got to and and what was that journey from being a novice at fly fishing to where you've reached now
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think perhaps that part of what keeps you on the journey is the drive to have a different kind of time life experience in amongst all of the sort of pressures and stresses of contemporary life actually being able to carve out I don't know 12 or 20 days a year which I guess is probably what I put into it somewhere somewhere between that around about a dozen days a year 20 days a year to actually take this kind of time out so I'm driven for a different kind of time and then once, once once you accept that there's an activity that that can give you that those peak moments of perfection happen they might happen like three times a season so you're constantly like looking for that moment and trying to and trying to reach those kinds of perfect moments because all sorts of things go wrong you know flies get caught in a tree and they get tangled around your head and you fall over in the water and very often you catch nothing there are no fish there or it rains you know all sorts of ter- all sorts of things go wrong so pursuit of the perfect moment i think is one of the things that keeps me going i mean you just learn that stuff as you go along from people we teach each other I mean, there are professional things you can do to learn. I've learnt it as a social thing, really. And, and I'm still not very good. I mean, 15 years in, I wouldn't say I was a particularly brilliant fly fisherman compared to some of the people that I see on the river. I always feel as though there's, there's an endless amount to learn. It's an infinite field, actually. You will never, You will never know all the things that you could know. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Rich.
2: Yeah, I I agree. There's, as you say, there's always so much to learn. Obviously, nowadays you can watch YouTube clips and so on and so forth, and get en- envious about just how well people can do certain things. A couple of things there, as John said, you don't always catch, but that doesn't mean you don't enjoy it. You know, there's fishing isn't catching in a sense, and you can still have an enjoyable day even without catching, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's true. And the idea of time, as well as John said, you know, it's about investing time and seeing an improvement. And you move from a kind of trying to cast incredibly difficult initially, and you move from conscious incompetence to sort of unconscious expert, or, or that, that 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 kind of four stage of development. And now, you know, we could be standing there talking and both casting and, and doing it really well. When you start learning it, it's it's really difficult because it is about the kind of biomechanics of it. I think it's a real challenge to learn. I'm I'm quite like John, really. I'm quite kind of evangelical about it i try to encourage friends to go and to make sure they have fun and i've introduced a few people to it certainly and if if i'm out fishing with someone who's a total novice like john i wouldn't set myself up to be an expert you know i'm reasonably good now but uh, i can certainly improve and, and hope hope that i will but if i'm fishing with someone else i'll always kind of offer advice and, and hand my rod over if i catch a fish and they've never landed one and let them let them catch it if i've got one on the end and so on and it's like that the, the whole sport people are very facilitative. They help one another, and there's a real enthusiasm for it amongst people. I think in terms of time, it, it can be very relaxing. It is generally very relaxing. There's loads of books about fishing, as there are on, on many sports. I, I I know there's one book by um, Ian Botham, I think, who isn't necessarily an author I'd I'd go to very regularly. But he talked about how a day spent fishing is a day added to the end of your life. In other words, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. You, it's not a wasted day. You, you relax so much, there's a, almost a kind of nil cost. And I find that a really, a really nice idea. And like John, I do use uh, a, a fair chunk of my annual leave and, and weekends on, on fishing and related things. And that's something that's, that's certainly grown. I played football and a few other sports up to my kind of early 40s, really, and I took quite a bit of time doing that. I wouldn't have time to fit everything in now, but I, fishing is, in a sense, my, my kind of number one participating uh, leisure activity.
0: Thank you both. Um, I continue to be fascinated by by the the entire pursuit and how you talk about it and the experiences that that you have around that. I was wondering if Sam can maybe come in and unpack the the description of fly fishing as a hobbyist pursuit, but also the the benefits that Richard and John describe and how this fits with the serious leisure perspective.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Betty. How long have we got? I mean, there was so much in there, and I, I just love how eloquently you're both speaking about the the, the activity. It's uh, it is clearly a passion, and uh, it was interesting, Richard, when you you started talking about the very you know at the top of the conversation. You, you you know you subconsciously called it a hobby, which is quite interesting because when we look at the serious ledger perspective and the the three kind kind of component parts to that, we've got the amateur pursuits, the hobbyist pursuits, and the volunteer pursuits. And it, this certainly in, in the way that you've been describing your experiences of fly fishing falls within the hobbyist aspects of the framework and what do we mean by that well it's activity uh, participation you know there's a core activity there and the, the activity itself it's about there's a fulfillment to that it requires an extensive gathering and development of knowledge and skills technique within that and certainly practice and, and, and there's there's parallels to be drawn between sport and games as, as John has already brought in in terms of you know there being a maybe a, a looser, but certainly there's a rule-bound nature to the activity. And that's very much dependent on, you know, the, the, the social world that, that you find yourselves in within that particular activity, what's accepted, what's not accepted uh, in, in terms of that practice. So in terms of positioning it within the within serious leisure or within the, within the, the perspective of serious leisure, it's certainly a hobbyist activity. But there's so much more within that. I mean, I've made, been making some notes, so forgive me if I'm just of making some sense of this, because th- there's a couple of things I want to draw out. The first thing, and this is, this is kind of a, <laughs> a personal interest as well, my, my, my research is on serious leisure, yes, and it has been on, uh, on the, uh, the experience of flow within serious leisure. So that piqued my interest. But actually, when, when we look at what's been written about the serious leisure perspective, one of the unique and, and, and durable benefits of a serious leisure pursuit is the thrill and the flow of the core activity itself. And and John, you, you, you've you been very eloquent and, and uh, descriptive there in terms of your own experience. And Richard, I can hear it in how you're talking there as well, you know, in terms of the skill challenge of, of the whole thing. And, you know, actually, the the way you put it, John, was about you know pursuit of the perfect moment and you know that's what drew that's what draws you back you know for those 12 to 20 days a year that's what draws you back and actually the fact that you don't catch anything is neither here nor there it's actually the pursuit of that particular moment and i really really like that you know the aesthetics of that so there's a performance component to this which is uniquely personal to you you know it's, and, and there's there's aspects of bodily practice in there as well it's a very physical thing isn't it and the, you talked about being connected to nature and this is where i wanted to uh, to kind of draw a question out because there's actually two aspects to this so in, in the perspective itself we talk about nature challenge and you can imagine the kind of activities that might be involved there rock climbing yeah, skiing. You can imagine, that. but it, within the, within the way you've been describing it, uh, the the core activity here, you know, there's a, there's an aspect of escaping to nature, but there's also an aspect of being connected to nature you know and you were talking about wading in up to your waist you know you're in nature you're you're now immersed in nature and that's part of the the whole experience i wonder what it is about that particular aspect you find so appealing you know and and whether that is in fact a conscious thing in terms of when you think about your work practices is that something you you have actively sought out
2: I think so. Uh, I think I've, I've always enjoyed nature and and in some ways in, in fishing, there's a bit of a, there's a contradiction at the heart of the dilemma in a sense. there's There, there are concerns, people have concerns about cruelty to animals, you know, to fish uh, particularly. Generally, we do everything we can to avoid harm to fish barbless hooks, try and avoid touching them, you keep them in the water to unhook them if you can and so on and so forth. Obviously there's no, you know, since we don't use bait there's no kind of aspects of cruelty there Uh, there's a whole thing around, you know, making sure everything's clean and tidy and you don't leave litter and so on and so forth and in terms of pollution and everything fisher people and so on have have been at the heart of trying to drive the cleaning up of rivers and for the environmental benefit for everyone and campaigning against uh, slurry flows coming off of fields and, and polluting rivers and, and so on and so forth and and for me the enjoyment of nature and the natural world is is very much part of it you know I, I live in the in the city I enjoy living in a city but I also enjoy getting out of the city and I enjoy being surrounded by water I think various people have talked about well-being and, and the idea of how it can be connected to water and I think in in some ways that's been thrown into sharp relief by the covid pandemic I certainly found our, our ability to go fishing which we couldn't during the first lockdown until about the middle of May. Um, and I went on the first day we could. And then I went again a couple of days after that because I kind of missed it so much. And, and for me, it really was about getting out. Uh, if I remember, I didn't catch anything either time, but I, I still had a, a great time. And, and being out in nature is, is very important to me. This is a good focal point for it. And I, th- I, th- I think the appeal of, of fishing, it's, it's always had a presence in the media. And quite recently, there's been a TV series with Bob Multimer and Paul Whitehouse about fishing. And I know people, you know, my partner and partners of several of my friends who, who really enjoy fishing, who would, my partner wouldn't dream of going fishing. She's got zero interest in it, but she loves that show. And that show is as much about friendship and relationships but it's also about being there and being in nature and seeing what's going on and so on. And and for me, I think that show comes across and portrays fishing really nicely. There are fishing programs which are very macho and it's, you know, like there's one called River Monsters with Jeremy Wade and there's extreme fishing and things like that. And this is very much about catching the biggest fish and all the rest of it. But certainly the type of fishing I do and the social benefits and, and the kind of benefits of nature that I feel I get from it are far more akin to uh, Mortimer and Whitehouse than the rest of those TV shows
4: i'm absolutely fascinated rich by your emphasis on the social aspect friendship and relationships and the being in nature because in fact uh, on our previous episode we were talking about um social prescribing I, i don't know if you're familiar with this particular Uh, approach and the way that this actually overlaps a lot with discussions about leisure because what social prescribing does is it is it formalizes the sort of interfacing of somebody with a health service and then onto onto a leisure activity effectively but in a very deliberate way and so it provides a, a mechanism to enable someone to address their well-being situation you know by taking up a type of leisure activity And very interestingly, the main goals of those types of activities, because they can be anything, although I've never heard of fishing being one, but as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, wow, that would be an incredible opportunity. Because the focus is to provide a context for that social connection, that friendship, and then very often to do things like do something physical in the way that that helps us feel better, and also to connect with nature. It's really interesting because actually, I think as a, as a non-fishing person, I would have always have thought about fishing as a very specialist activity that had a very specialist reason why people would be involved in that type of sport. And in fact, as I'm hearing you speak, it's interesting to see that there's a universality, I think, to what draws us to things and why we might consider them, you know, to be beneficial. And why obviously you're, you're dedicating your annual leave to this activity in that way. It makes perfect sense to me. I, I did wonder um, if I could just change tack slightly. Both of you described your jobs at the beginning of this episode. If you just led with that and then asked us as a group to guess what your leisure activities would be, I would eat a hat if anyone would have said fly fishing from your professional setting. Now, by contrast, when people look at my job with the Centre for Music, it's not implausible that much of my serious leisure fits into that. I just. Um, I wonder, do, you, do, you, do either of you feel as if it was a deliberate gesture to have a space that is completely separate from your expertise and working identity? Was that a kind of deliberate thing? Was it accidental? Or I, I'm just so fascinated by the total like non-relationship between these two things. And I wondered as well whether that, in fact, is part of what makes it such a benefit to you. I'd love to hear more about that.
3: That's an interesting question and quite a funny one. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty used to my cool young media colleagues to re- regarding me as an utter loser for being into fishing that of course would have been quite uncomfortable if i was 30 or 35 but actually given that i'm 60 or 65 i don't give a toss so i'm really happy to be regarded in that way and having this to regarded as having this weird other thing that i do that is um a silly old bloke kind of thing to get into so yeah that is interesting i never thought about that it certainly doesn't quite fit the image so you might be surprised there's some pretty cool stuff going on around fly fishing Fly fishing has become a proper hipster thing in America in the last few years, right? So, you know, I'm, 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 once, once in a while, I'll be cool again.
2: <laughs> I agree. I, th- I think that the public image of fly fishing, there's perhaps some, some of the listeners, if not all of us here, will remember a TV advert for Yellow Pages, the old telephone directory. And it was uh, J.R. Hartley some well-spoken old boy who'd written this book about fly fishing and so on. And there is this image that it's done by the kind of upper class, upper middle class old men. And certainly there are, those people are still in fly fishing, but they tend to join exclusive clubs and they tend to join, you know, in a sense, they wouldn't allow the likes of myself and John into those clubs, even if we wanted to pay the ridiculous fees they charge to keep people like us out. But as John said, there is a kind of younger aspect to it. Yes, it is still aged and classed and raced and gendered and so on. And certainly in terms of my day job, I'm interested in social justice and and things, things of that nature. That again I can see this playing out and I can see social class being lived out and and type of fishing people do but as John said there is a kind of cooler hipster side of it in in the US there's a kind of crowd of young people who go snowboarding in the winter and fly fishing in the summer there's a kind of jazz thing as well that's going on there's these Scandinavian jazz musicians who are all into fly fishing and they they travel around different parts of uh, Denmark and Sweden and Norway and so on and there's also a kind of anti-establishment aspect to it even there's a website site called fly punk which sounds a bit daft and it's about people who don't see themselves as part of that kind of old boys club type thing but they they really still enjoy fly fishing for the reasons we've talked about and they may be people who, who if you look if you saw them in the street you know and they've tattoos and they're, they're certain age demographic or whatever you wouldn't guess that they're fly fishers but in, in fact they are i know about half a dozen at yui i won't name check them all now but I've, i as, as well as john who i was introduced to john through a colleague of mine who's a, a mutual friend of, of myself and John because he knew John fly fished and I did and he said well why don't you guys get together and, and go you know and, and we did and so on but there are other people I've been in meetings at UE uh, with some senior staff as well wearing a little lapel badge of a, a fishing fly and it's been spotted by someone and said oh you're a fly fisherman as well so we don't all wear our heart on the sleeves in a sense but there are quite a few of us about.
4: I was just thinking Sam actually this this links us back again to this series, some of the concepts in the serious ledger doesn't it because it's um, where there where there's a pursuit which has these specific you know indicators where people who are involved in that specific activity will know and would clock them and would be kind of part of that community but in an almost kind of secret way not deliberately secret but I mean to say if you're not if you don't have the expertise and if you're not involved in that community then you won't you won't recognize it you won't know the language and you perhaps wouldn't know about these these different expressions that you've described about what it is and know who's who and, and who fits in where. I wonder, Sam, if you wanted to dive in on that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated listening. And it's it's actually what it is. It's it's a description of, you know, the, the key features of serious pleasure, isn't it? And I'm very, actually, I'm sat here you know, I don't really need to say, any, say anything. It's all there. What we're talking to specifically here is this aspect of you know, there being a, a unique ethos to that particular social world, yeah? So, you know, a sense of community, however sprawling that might be, uh, a sense of belonging, attachment, and how that then is portrayed in, in well, sometimes how we dress, certain ways of dressing, certain ways of behaving. Uh, Richard, you're talking there about Connecting with others through that mutual appreciation of that particular core pursuit, that sense of community plays out, doesn't it? But that unique ethos as well, you know, it has, it's multifaceted, you know, and the, and I'm sure if we had a broader sample, if you like, of Fly fisher, uh, fisher people, but I'm sure they'd have similar experience in terms of how they describe the experience, what draws them in. We'd have facets of similarity there, but certainly what we would see, uh, and what we what we're hearing now between John and, and Richard, is that the articulation of that unique ethos and how that social world has certain characteristics. and I, And I know that that differs depending on depending on you know. The, I know the, there's clubs, and you say you pay membership fees to be part of that particular, and then those particular clubs themselves have a certain etiquette and behavioral code of conduct so again that kind of rule bounds so i find that really really interesting how you know they might differ from club to club for example so that sense of attachment and belonging you know it's nuanced as well
0: well this leads me to my question if if a person man or a woman wants to get into fly fishing how do you get into it it very much sounded when richard talked about that he had some history in it but he also in effect contacted with an experienced other in this case john who kind of brought him into the community i'm just really interested into that threshold of engaging with feeling at home with and and obviously developing the practice and the and the expertise but how do you move from oh i'm interested in in this to i'm now inside the circle
3: there are places that you can go where you can get lessons, right? So Bristol Water, actually, the water that we all drink, also houses there are many, many trout out there in Chew Magna and Blagden. They used to run lessons, which is where I first learned to cast. And so then you meet a few people and you start chatting and you start picking things up. And then in my case, I already had a friend who used to bring me as a guest into these, these club waters that I had now access to. And then I put my name on the waiting list to become a member of that club. I, I passed an unofficial kind of ritual test one day on the riverbank when I met one of the people that run the club. And we were chatting away and he said, Do you want to be on the waiting list? So, I'd love to be on the waiting list. He said, OK, well, that's fine. He said, I can tell from the flies that are on your fly patch on your jacket that you'll be a good member of the club. So... I wouldn't like to kind of to sort of give the impression it's a homogenous world. Actually, the world of fly fishing is, of course, like any other social activity, very contested. It's different between England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland. It's different between the north and the south. And all these little communities have their own systems and their own ways of behaving and their own ethics and their own approaches to ecology and fishing and uh, inclusion and membership, and all sorts of things like that. So, th- so there's a lot of specificity in each of those little subcultures. Um, and I suppose, like anything else, you sort of seek people out, and you look for the secret handshake, and you look for the lapel badge, and you start to find people, and then you and then you start to go out fishing with them, and then you learn, you know. And then and then after a, a, over a period of ten years, maybe if you're lucky, you build up a small community of people that you hang out with. The clubs are really important, I think. Once you become part of a club, that gives you a lot of access. To to social, to information, to intelligence, to training, in an unofficial way. I think so. The clubs are really the sort of um, like in a lot of serious leisure activities. Clubs are the kind of life, the lifeblood of the social system. I would say.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. We choose to join certain sorts of clubs. Now, I couldn't necessarily afford some of the dearer ones anyway, but, you know, it's that kind of Groucho Marx thing. And would you be a member of a club <laughs> that would have you or whatever? But there's, I mean, a club where John and I are members down in Wiltshire, it costs, you know, it's a it's couple of hundred quid a year. So it's not dead cheap, but it's not prohibitively expensive. But there is the adjoining strip of water to the part of one of the rivers that we're, we're allowed to fish. There's, there's the bridge across the water and we own if you like our club owns part of the water up to the bridge then another club owns it after that now instead of paying a couple of hundred quid the, the people who fish the other side of the bridge pay a couple of thousand quid so it becomes incredibly exclusive i wouldn't dream of spending that sort of money to join a fishing club but uh, even if i could afford to which i can't and certainly you know within my family such a decision would be very unpopular People join those clubs to, to be exclusive and to avoid having to fish with others who, who they don't necessarily have an affinity with, perhaps. And there is a kind of notion of identity politics around this, different people. And as well as things like the the cognoscenti, the people know, when you talk about certain types of fly fishing, as indeed with other hobbies and and leisure activities, the people in the know will pick up the clues. They've got the kind of cultural capital, if you like, to understand what it is you're talking about and the type of fishing you do and your preferred method. You can fish using things that don't really look like natural food for, for the fish. So you can have bits of pink fluff and things like that which for some reason provokes a kind of trigger response and the fish attack it and then well you know you can catch the fish that way but for many people who are real purists they wouldn't dream of catching a fish like that even if you know even though it may be more effective you have to do it the, the kind of proper way you know it's against the spirit of it they'd rather not catch fish at all or rather not fish if that was the only way to fish and that's interesting and i know the way fly fishing developed is it became popularized in victorian time by the kind of upper middle class gentlemen generally. I'm not an expert on serious leisure, but I know there's a notion of uh, otium, which is that that idea of improving recreational activity, sort of intellectually beneficial and so on. So people started fishing and they chose a way to fish that is quite difficult and that itself perhaps excludes others. But it set apart these Victorian gentlemen from regular folks who maybe would fish as a source of food. So they'd choose to fish the most productive and efficient way. So they'd use barbed hooks, for instance, which which certainly John and I don't use now. Fish are, you know, you're more likely to catch a fish. If it bites a barbed hook, it's harder to get it out to slip off. So there's a difference between that kind of pursuit as a kind of idealized aesthetic than just doing it solely to catch. Earlier on, you talked about well-being and and prescribing and so on and social prescribing and that is going on apparently I don't have the details with me I know there's an academic researcher I think it's a woman from University of East Anglia who talks about the benefits of this mental well-being and so on particularly on young people And there are various charities. There's a body that's called Fly Fishing for Heroes who uh, work with war veterans, for instance, and take them out. And so you can kind of volunteer to go and go fishing with someone who's a war veteran or or whatever, or people with different forms of disability and so on. You can adapt the boats and everything if you're fishing on a a lake. Or disadvantaged children. Again, there's charities that take disadvantaged, often inner city kids, out to countryside and and in a sense teach them to fish, which also presumably will be accompanied by... Growing appreciation of nature and the interrelationship of of nature and ecology and so on. So it is recognised, but perhaps the potential for social prescribing and so on has not been fulfilled just yet. But I believe that's the kind of direction of travel we're on.
4: That's fascinating. I wasn't aware of that, Rich. I, I'll actually I'll, I'll go and look at that because hearing your descriptions, it then suddenly seemed like such an obvious choice and a, and a way of using fly fishing uh, as an intervention. You know.
1: Yeah. Sure. Some really interesting comments there. Now, I'm just wary of time, and I also want to bring in another comparison here. and and John, I wonder whether you want to come in on this one around you know what I'm hearing in the just the wonderful, eloquent description of the art and experience of fly fishing. Uh, is this idea of I mean, it, well it's very it's storied isn't it it's storied you both have a history you both have a story uh, and and in the serious leisure context what you have I- yourselves is is this idea of a, a, a leisure career in the activity itself you know and, and that trajectory of from novice to expert you know neither of you would probably class yourselves as, as an expert but in terms of that mastery of the core activity and the technique and the pursuit of that perfect moment and performance and i just wonder how that career your leisure career compares to your work careers and i I really 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 find this interesting and i was also i'm laughing because uh, richard you're so eloquent in how you unpick it and i'm just sitting here thinking of course he is he's a sociologist so it's uh yeah you know if you but in terms i'm just interested you know what is it you, you don't get in your work career that you get in your leisure career, for example, and vice versa? And, but I'm more interested in that bit. That pit. So this idea of career is certainly coming out. What's the point of difference for you? Peace and quiet is the main difference,
3: man. I do three things for work. I talk and I read and I write. Those are basic activities. They're all very cerebral. There's a lot of chatting and a lot of pressure and a lot of negotiation and a lot of persuasion and a lot of face-to-face, person-to-person tussling with trying to make things happen in the world. And it's great. It's something that I certainly wouldn't claim that I have any mastery of. I think I'm sort of comfortable with doing it in a way it's the absolute opposite it's a, it's like a mirror image because it's peace and quiet it's being with myself it's not having to front up it's not having to impress anybody it's not having to say anything it's not having to persuade anybody uh, it's not having to pull anybody up on a deadline that's been missed or even having to have really strenuous conversations with a student on 57 trying to get them to have a 62 you know it's kind of it's none of that stuff it's just being with myself and being in nature and being quiet so in terms of the parallel trajectory I mean I think for me I wouldn't have had time to even have any space to think about this when my children were small and I was getting my career together and I was working out how all that worked I mean there were 20 years where this was irre- was completely irrelevant so it's interesting to me that it only some guys will have will carry on playing football all through that time or cricket or running or climbing or they'll have a sport or something that they do that's outside of the family i never really had that so i didn't really discover it again until i had the leisure time in my life to find it and and also you know i did have a health event you know i I had a slip disc i was a head of department it was a really clear message what happens when you carry too much weight oh your back gives out okay you better you better start sorting your life out john because otherwise this is not good so that was another points in my life where i started looking actively for a different way of being and other things in my life that would actually balance out my career actually
2: Yeah, I I mean, there's probably not a huge amount I can add to that. I think John's put it really well. I, at the moment, I think through the COVID pandemic, obviously we're spending even longer indoors. And, you know, certainly myself and John and and probably most of the people listening here are spending nearly all of their time in their own house. And I think the joy of actually getting out and getting near water and being able to indulge in the pursuits that we choose to, I think is, is a real pleasure we've been fortunate in the fishing of all sorts but uh, for us fly fishing has has been classified as an exercise and you're allowed to take it as part of your daily exercise as long as you stay local so that means we're able to to go within you know a certain geographical distance and so on and I think I've appreciated it more when I've not been able to get out as much if you like there's the social aspect and again there's been times when you've been able to meet in small groups or just one other person and so on so I've fished with with one other friend when we've been allowed to meet one other person outside and and so on. In terms of career, yeah, I think like John, I couldn't, again it's not prohibitively expensive for people on professional salaries as we are I certainly couldn't have afforded to do this when I was young when I was fishing with friends as a kid unless I had someone who could loan me all the kit because I couldn't buy it whereas now I I have a bit more disposable income I have more time you know as I say I used to play football and things but I I now do gentler activities following various injuries and things meaning I I can't play football any longer and so the, the my kind of fly fishing career is something I if you put it in that term, I I think is something I'm 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 keen to develop and I can see me I'm not quite as old as John I'm in my mid-50s but I can imagine this is something that I will be doing until I'm no longer physically able to it's certainly something I want to do as and when I come to retire just as it's something I do sometimes at weekends or on leisure days annual leave days, sorry or through going away going away for weekends even and part of going away for the weekends coming back to the social aspect there's a place uh, I go with some friends sometimes where six of us go up to six and it's uh, there's a sort of cabin by the side of a lake and it's sort of a private lake and so you you hire it for the weekend and so on and and we spend longer not fishing in that we're sitting around the fire and having a few drinks and so on and and talking about stuff and that is really difficult to imagine replacing with 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 anything else equivalent so you know that side of it i can imagine again doing a long time to come i think another aspect of it which we haven't really touched on is that compared to other sports it's incredibly democratic there are some people who are international fly fishermen uh, using a gender term there who i've fished with you know simply because you can one of the professionals who are based at bristol waters as john said chew and blagdon and so on is the most capped international fly fisherman in england and you you can share a boat with him for uh, a couple of hours or something as part of his kind of giving giving back to the sport and there's no way you know i'm, I'm mad keen on football but i can't imagine i can just phone up an international class footballer and, and ask for help or advice or never mind get to meet them so you can learn from people and people are keen and willing to give you the time and, and to pass on their enthusiasm and that's certainly been something as i said earlier in the, sh- in the show something i'm keen to do i've encouraged friends my age who, who used to fish when they were kids and haven't done so for ages who i've kind of persuaded in a sense to give fly fishing a go and as john said you can start by going to a club but the easiest way in a sense is find someone else who does it already who's prepared who has some spare who it, show you the basics, and in a sense, that's what I started doing with one of my neighbours, Justin, about ten years ago. I mainly fished on lakes. I did some river fishing, but uh, John was someone who helped with that as well. I'm now a member of the club he was talking about. I was also on the waiting list for several years, and I attend. I went there with John and a few other people as a guest, and, and really got into river fishing. And I think that's the one I like the most because it is partly so immersive into nature, and that awareness of the natural world is is absolutely staring you in the face.
0: I think this is so fascinating and I knew we could talk about this forever. And I also, um, when Richard and I initially talked about um, this topic of the podcast, he said, you can actually do an entire podcast series on, on fly fishing and I can see why and I can see how you can absolutely do that. What I find fascinating to kind of conclude our discussion with is how our, particularly our final comments really link to the origin of this podcast about looking for leisure pursuit that is so distinct and different to your day job that you enrich your life in a in a different way but you also you escape the day job and the normal and you know being stuck at home and being outside and and all those parallels so um and 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 all the other things that we talked about and i'm also quite intrigued by for regular listeners um i've spoken about the uh, how a health event can lead you to a leisure pursuit so sometimes we need that wake-up call if we we don't have the history and the habits of engaging with a regular leisure pursuit like for example Richard has obviously done that with his his football play and how for for Jonathan there was definitely a spur as a result of that and the entire ethos of this podcast is that we don't all have to wait for that health event to hit us before we really reconsider our own well-being and our own leisure and enriching our lives so I think this is a great great uh, point to end this podcast on I would like to thank the four of you tremendously for this fascinating discussion. So thank you so much to John Dovey, to Richard Waller, to Cat Branch and to Sam Elkington. I would also like to thank um, Julia Denman who is um, expertly recording this in the background and to our newest uh, podcast team member Helga Ganoster who is going to help us with the editing of this recording and hopefully uh, sort out all the little bloopers we've had um, as the- this conversation progressed. There is more to come. Uh, keep listening up. There will be more podcasts. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I hope to see you soon. Bye, everyone.